but you know, what story am I going to tell myself when I'm 85 years old sitting on the porch? For my first 30 years, I did this corporate real estate job and it was great and checked a lot of boxes. But what about the next 30 years? You know, how did I take everything I learned and go make a difference in other people's lives, whether it's people or businesses? You know, uh, the comfortable thing certainly would, would have been to stay. But I think it is looking at the evidence versus emotion. The evidence is that I'm likely to be successful. Yeah. Um, you've got to overcome the emotion, which is really fear. And, but then you have to position yourself properly, right? Think it through. And, you know, it's, while it's not easy, I think you've got to stick with it. It's sure. going to take a, little, take a little bit of time, but it's, it's, it's worth doing. It's worth betting on yourself. Yeah. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Men on Purpose podcast, where our mission is to elevate, educate, empower, enrich, and evolve men to be on purpose. Why? So that they can reveal the most authentic self live their most fulfilling and regret-free lives possible. I think it's pretty damn important, and that's why I'm on this mission, and I'm so freaking grateful you guys are here. I'm on the road, just moved to LA. I'm back sitting in my parents' house. For those of you that are, that are watching on YouTube, you're going to hear dogs barking. You're going to hear lawnmowers. You're going to hear things fall. You're going to hear a phone ring. It is what it is. None of that matters because the content is so damn good. My, part, my guest today is a good friend of mine, a mentor to me, uh, Gene Parker from Parker Advisory and Parker University, an absolute expert in anything and everything commercial real estate investing. Now, before I tell you about Gene, let's go over the free resources. You ready? The Men on Purpose community, right? If you haven't joined it yet, we've got, uh, I think by this time we have like 300 members, which is awesome. Uh, the Men on Purpose community is really important that you go right now and you Get signed up for the Mental Purpose community on Facebook because what we're going to be doing here today is a little surprise. You're going to have to listen to the end to be able to figure that one out, but you got to be a part of the Mental Purpose community on Facebook to be able to get this little surprise at the end. Hint, hint. All right. Next, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, go on iTunes or wherever you listen, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever, and click that subscribe button and subscribe to the Mental Purpose podcast. Okay. That's it. That's it. Well, we've got our front runner stuff. We've got a lot of events coming up, and we do have some spaces available for the November, December, and January events. So if you want to learn about our groundbreaking, proven, structured, like blow your mind personal involvement retreats, our front runner retreats, go to frontrunner.group or go to Mental Purpose Podcast or my website, ianloboss.com, and you'll find out more about it awesome. We love them. We're so inspired and emotional and connected and just, oh, there's so many different things that happen with our front runner business. But it's not why we're here. Why we're here is to talk about investing in shopping centers. That's right. So investing in shopping centers was always something that I, I had no idea about. So when you don't have a, an, an idea or an understanding or an education about something, what's the first thing that we do? Well, we hate on it or we fear it, or we put it off to the side, or we say, hey, that doesn't work for us. But in this case, I have Gene as an advisor. And Gene is really damn good with this. And I'm going to read you his bio, and you're going to realize why you should listen to this. Every single freaking minute, have a pen and paper out. This thing is going to be packed full of little secrets that you might not know about. And even if you do know about shopping center investing, you may learn something today that you didn't know because Gene is real high up. And I'm talking like leading authority high up when it comes to investing in commercial properties and then specifically shopping centers. So let me read you Gene's bio. Um, look, you know, you guys know I don't pitch any, a lot of stuff on here. I let people pitch their websites and where they, you know, 
if they have a product or where people can find them. I wanted to bring Gene on here today because one, I love Gene's story. Gene was a former corporate guy that quit his job after like 26 years, which come on, I mean, that takes a lot of balls. It does plain and simple. It takes a lot of balls. And he, he pushed himself through the fear. I helped him a little bit go through that transition from corporate life, breaking the golden handcuffs and starting his own businesses, which he started, he started a lot and he runs a lot of businesses too. But I brought him on because I have so many friends of mine within this group and within my world that want to know about other blue oceans within the red ocean of commercial real estate investing, like multifamily or, you know, whatever. And when I learned about shopping centers for Gene, I thought, okay, that's a blue ocean. I have not heard anybody talk about shopping centers like that. I learned so much the first time we talked. I said, hey, man, I'm going to help you build a course. Well, guess what? The course is ready. And I said to Gene, let's, do, let's, let's, let's get the mental purpose community involved so that if you guys want to learn about it, great, awesome, let's do it. If not, listen to the episode. You're going to learn a ton. So let me give you Gene's bio, and then we're going to get right in. Ready? Okay, Gene Parker from Parker University and Parker Advisory is a very trusted leading authority and expert when it comes to commercial real estate investing for over 25, or sorry, 28 years. 26 of those years of his career, he spent with a 300 employee, $2 billion company where he served as the president for 10 years, right? He's a real deal. Gene was also the COO of one of the largest commercial property developers and manager and, um, uh, commercial property developers and managers in Central Maryland. He's a principal broker um, and uh, he's a principal and broker of record at Rosso Commercial Real Estate Services. He also owns Parker Advisory, which I mentioned, where he consults and partners with real estate fundraisers and investors to help them grow and scale their real estate investing businesses. Gene's experience in commercial real estate includes investments, includes operations, leasing, asset management, and fundraising. He's got experience in uh, large multifamily apartments and shopping centers and offices and flex properties and you name it, he's done it. So Gene has been directly involved with raising nearly $500 million in four real estate private equity funds. You wanna learn how to raise money? Pretty sure Gene is a leading authority in that. So stay tuned for that. We're gonna talk about raising funds. Gene's a master of science in real estate from Johns Hopkins University and MBA from Loyola University of Maryland. He also holds five real estate broker licenses in Maryland, D.C., Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. Need more? Here you go. Gene's also been a graduate level instructor at Georgetown University for the past 10 years, an instructor at Johns Hopkins University, yes, the Johns Hopkins University, for 15 years, and is frequently requested as a guest speaker and lecturer at other prestigious universities. He serves on the board of Chevy Chase Land Company and Royco Properties, which are a big deal. Gene is currently an active uh, firefighter in EMT, and he's a former U.S. Marine. So today we're going to be talking about investing in shopping centers, why it's so lucrative, how you can get involved, and just e either get involved or take what you know and learn even more today. So look, listen for the end, but I'm going to give you this sneak peek. So tonight, tonight, if you're listening to this on the 20th, when this episode comes out tonight, we're going to be doing the first course of Gene's 12-step get your butt into investing in, in shopping centers and be really freaking good at it course. We're going to do the first step tonight, September 20th, for free inside the Mental Purpose Facebook community. Go in there, click on the events tab, and you're going to find more information. I'm sorry. I, I was going to wait till the end, but I can't. I'm too excited. Um, 
Then the next weekend, or sorry, the next Monday, whatever that is, this 27th, we're going to be doing the second course in his 12-step for free for the mental purpose community. So you want it? Okay, jump into the events tab in the mental purpose community right now and make sure that you hit an alert. And if you're not a part of the mental purpose community, go join it right now. Don't mess around. You're going to learn a ton in this. We're going to give you as much as we possibly can just to offer as much value as we possibly can. It's our thing. Elevate, educate, empower, enrich, and evolve to be on purpose. So go be on purpose. Join the community or go set the reminder for the class tonight. That's it. All right, you ready? Here we go. Here's the episode. This is Gene Parker. Enjoy. All right, Gene. Today we're going to learn about shopping centers, buddy. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. <laughs> well, you're the one who's teaching. I'm learning. The rest of the audience is going to learn. You know, so Perfect. I told the audience in the intro that uh, sitting at your house that one day and you told me, you talked to me for maybe 20, 30 minutes about shopping centers, it completely not only changed my mind as to other big commercial investments and how lucrative and amazing they can be, but it, it, it opened up an entire world of possibilities for me. So before we get into that, which we are going to get into learning about shopping centers and shopping center investment um, and, and the, the severe benefits and perks to that, but first let's talk to the audience and tell them about your background, your story, and, and like how you got to be who you are today and opening up all the things that you're opening up. So go, go as far back as you want to go. Sure, sure. No, I'll start, um, you know, maybe I'll start in, in high school, yeah. um, you know, and, and even before that, you know, I, I was always the kid that was sort of never, never the smart kid. You know, what happens in sort of fifth, sixth grade, if you can't do fractions, you know, add and subtract fractions, you get put in sort of the slower kids group, uh, you know, and so it's a funny thing. So, you know, that I think that sort of stuck with me and, you know, math was sort of never my thing. It's funny now because I teach it, but uh you know, I, I, so, you know, finished up high school, went to college and, uh, you know, and everything's fine. First year, you know, community college, second year, I wasn't doing so well, you know, and I thought to myself, you know, well, need some kind of intervention. So I thought, well, let me join the Marines. That, that'll solve it. So I, I thought, you know, a few months at Paris Island would do the trick and it, it did, you know, I lost, uh, I don't know, 40 or 50 pounds and came back, wound up pretty tight and, um, got myself back into school and, and finished up school really didn't know what you know what, what to do after college um you know this is going back to sort of january of, of 1990 and you know worked in a couple different industries that involve uh, management and sales and what i realized is i really love the sales side which isn't my natural personality but i love getting paid for what i do yeah. versus what everybody around me does yeah it's funny because i've since become a manager too but at the time, you know, I got into outside sales and I was selling, you know, engines and transmissions and, and funny things like that. I was always a car guy and it seemed natural, you know, but it, did, it didn't seem like a career. And I had family members involved in commercial real estate and I thought maybe there's something there. So this is going back to 1992. I decided, well, maybe the way to get into commercial real estate is to get my real estate license. So Howard Community College signed up and uh, went in the evenings and picked up my real estate license. Coincidentally, um, I was uh, introduced through my father-in-law to a commercial real estate development company up in Baltimore. And um, anyway, through a series of interviews, I ended up getting this job as a director of leasing. I didn't entirely know what that meant. And as a director, I didn't have anybody to direct. Actually, my admin assistant was really teaching me the business. But th they thought there was something there. And what they were looking for is someone that had sales experience but didn't know real estate. 
and I was a salesman, but I, I really didn't know the real estate business, though I had my license. I, I think the real reason I was hired is because the, the CEO of the company at the time was a Marine. And I think he said, you know what, let me take a shot with this guy. Anyway, that's January 1993. And I started out as this director of leasing. And my, my first job was leasing shopping centers, whatever that is, you know. And so, you know, I'm learning on the fly. And it occurred to me five months later, this is sort of May of 93, that um, they really weren't going to teach me. And so I, I spent the next six years in graduate school going to get the education that I thought I not only did I need, but I probably wasn't going to get from my employer, certainly not as fast as I thought I needed it. So I did a master's in real estate and then an MBA. And after six years, um, so I had, I think, what I needed and then began to do things like join boards and, and learn about how other businesses work. Um, as I progressed with the company, you know, this development company, we had about a billion dollars in real estate at the time. When I left after 26 years, we had about 2 billion and 300 employees. So a lot of growth during that time. I was fortunate to really be in a lot of different roles. You know, when I was leasing shopping centers, which is really just going out and finding, you know, tenants, businesses that wanted to open in, in one of my empty uh, spots, you know, I, I began to run, run into problems with my property management team. And I remember going to the owner and saying, hey, I think I'd like to take over the property management team. And he said, you know, you don't know anything about property management. And I said, well, I don't really need to. I just need to know the outcome I want. Right. He said, hmm, okay. So he called in the head of property management and said, Gene's taken over. And so that began a progression really over my 26 years with, um, with this firm where I really just kept looking for problems. I was willing to take them on. And not only did nobody fight me for it, but after a while, you actually got paid and rewarded for it with titles and promotions. And so, you know, it was good. My, my last 10 years I spent as the president of the company, as I said, we had about $2 billion in real estate uh, and about 300 employees. And, you know, it was a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, at some point after, you know, more than half my life, I decided it was, you know, time to make a change. But during that time, I learned a lot. We, you know, at the time it was a family business, two families that owned all the assets. And during my last probably 10 or 12 years, it was clear that really to grow, we needed to find new sources of equity. And the way to do that was, I mean, there's lots of ways, but we decided to go out and uh, put some private equity funds together to, to invest directly in real estate. And so during probably my last 10 years, we put three private equity funds together, raised about $450 million and used that money to invest in uh, strip shopping centers and uh, multifamily apartment communities throughout the mid-Atlantic and Southeast. So that was really um, sort of how I wound down my career is raising those funds with the team of people that we had. And it was, it was fun. Learned a lot. It was very different. And, uh, and so now I, I take those skills that I learned through you know, Continental, whether it's business development organization, leadership, commercial real estate, fundraising, this, this sort of bucket. And now I help clients do that uh, around the world. Okay. So I want to ask you, you said, uh, I wasn't really good at math, even though I teach math now. That's an interesting topic because I wasn't ever good at math. And part of our part of our business is a large part of our business is figuring out formulas, and everything is formulaic. Business is formulaic, um, and it's not math, but it is math. It's this plus this plus this plus this minus that equals this. So for somebody out there that is in a position where they're like, man, I have no idea how to do geometry or trigonometry or even algebra. How can I become a successful business person when I don't, I don't know that stuff? Because you and I have become successful in businesses that require math, but it's not math as a whole. It's math very specified. 
right? Yeah, for sure. And, and so it's a great question. And, and so to dig a little deeper, you know, I, I think a couple things. One, when I teach math, I always tell people the great news is Excel does the work for you today. Right. You know, really what you need to know is you need to know the inputs, right? And, and our, our math answers really come from, from good, good inputs. Um, specifically, I would say, you know, the math I teach, and I think it's really, you know, I use the term math, but it's really finance, uh, accounting, and, and, and investment analysis, you know, and to some extent return analysis. And so a lot of it is really just sitting down and saying, okay, you know, what are the numbers and metrics that I need to solve for? Generally speaking, that's based upon your investor expectations. Right. And so it could be IRR, multiple leverage return, return equity, return on assets, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Um, you know, and, and I think it's really understanding, okay, that comes from formula, revenue minus expense, minus debt service, minus capital, gives us NOI and net cash flow. And so the question is, you know, what does that stream of income look like over time? And what would I pay for it today? So, you know, it really is the idea of maybe you can't do fractions and maybe you can't do algebra and trigonometry and calculus. And frankly, I still can't do any of that. But I do know how to teach, I do know how to teach the finance and accounting and the investment analysis and returns. You know, it, it's very different. And I wouldn't get hung up on, on what you don't know. You know, we all get, get paid in life for what we do well and we get paid for our strengths, not necessarily improving our weaknesses. And yeah. so I think a lot of it is just simply not letting that early experience become a limitation for you. I like that line. We get paid for our strengths, not necessarily improving our weaknesses. Well, I saw a lot of people throughout my career do that where they said, you know, I work in this part of the business, but I really wish I knew the other part. You know, and what I kept telling them is, you know, we, we pay you for the things you're really good at and hopefully you enjoy and they create a lot of value both for you and for us. We don't really pay you to improve on your weaknesses unless they're around the edges. Right. Yeah. That's such a, that's, that's so, so well put, so well structured. I've never heard it put like that because most people think, well, I'm not great at that. Like, I think school taught me, well, you're not great at this. So when you learn it, you'll be better and you'll be more comfortable and confident with it. But in my mind, as a defiant kid and a defiant adult, I'm like, I don't want to learn it. I don't care about it. I don't care about any of that stuff. I don't, I don't want to learn it. I don't need to learn it. I don't, I don't, I don't care about any of it. It doesn't matter to me. My brain is not engaged. Well, when my brain is engaged, I can learn anything. We, any of us can learn anything. It's just, do I actually need it? Do I want it? Maybe the problem is that nobody painted a picture for me to really want to learn certain things in school. You know, and, and those are the struggles that I had, which was it always just forced down my throat with no explanation of why you need it, except for if you want to be successful, you got to get good grades in school. That's it. Makes no. sense. Yeah, I, I think students today, you know, particularly young students are given a very narrow view of the world, you know, yeah. you take one of each class and yeah. you really don't know how, the practical application. You know, what I, what I always tell my teams are, are, it's very simple. We're fortunate because we're already here in this company. What we get to do is figure out what do we enjoy? What, yeah. what are we really good at? What adds value? And then we get to hire people to do those other things yeah. that we, you know, where, where they have different skills and interests, you know, as opposed to us. So, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's better than, you know, as, as you've sort of heard Jim Collins say in the, you know, his books, The Good, The Great, you know, it's about not just having the right people on the bus, but having the right people on the right seats on the bus. Yeah. And that's so important. There's no, no need to force fit. Force fits don't last long. So eventually, and this is kind of where I met you. Eventually you said after what, 27 years? 26 years. Yeah. 26 years. It was, okay, I can't do this anymore. I just cannot keep going like this anymore. So I want to dig into that because there's a lot of people out there listening to these episodes that are like, I hear you, but you're special. 
you've got something. You've got $10 million in family money helping you, or you've got, like, I'm, I'm just making up reasons that people, you know, give. Or you've got uh, something to fall back on, or you're already, you're already established, or whatever, it, whatever someone's excuse might be who's maybe listening to any of these episodes where someone broke free from a, a trajectory that they just, they, they were doing really well on. And you were making great money, like great, great money. But there was something inside of you that says, I, I, that said, I, I can't keep doing this to myself. I can't keep going like this. Break that down because there's one person in here that's listening that said that's going to need this like right now. Sure. Well, I, you know, I think that there's certainly some planning that goes into it. And I, I think, you know, in, in my case, after 26 years at this time, more than half my life, you know, I said to myself, okay, you know, my, my kids are largely grown and they're out of the house and, and right. you know, those bills are paid and there's a lot more options on the table maybe than there used to be. And, you know, so some of it's sitting around and saying, okay, you know, how much money do I need to save? And it's, to your point, it's not millions of dollars, but it, it's enough money to, to, you know, see you through a transition. And what other sources of income do I have? Now, you know, the reality is I had created some sources of income for myself through university level teaching and um, a little bit of consulting and, and some some board work where I wasn't going to start at zero, but you know, it, it, as you said, it was going to be, you know, a significant uh, change. I didn't have the staff and the support. Uh, I didn't have the 401k and the salary and the benefits and the bonus. A lot of those things you get very accustomed to and, and that, that keep you, you know, in that seat. Um, but you know, I, I think, and this is really to, to, you know, to largely to your credit is sitting down and saying, you know what, um, what's the worst that happens? <laughs> Let's give it a try. Right. Because if you, if you go out on your own, and that was really the transition, right? It wasn't leaving a, one job for another job. It was leaving this job to go out and really work for myself. Yeah. Um, and whatever that looked like, however, sort of the onion peeled back. And it's certainly not easy to ha have changed and, and to sort of, to some extent, start at zero again. Yeah. But, you know, if, if, I think if you really sit down and look at it, you say to yourself, well, what's, what's, the, what's the worst that happens? Right. If I totally fall on my face, then I'll just get a job. Like, that's the worst that happens is I lose a little money because it didn't work out. Um, but I think there's a few things, and you, you say it a lot. It's this idea of evidence versus emotion, right? Yeah. The emotion is, wow, you know, it's very comfortable doing what I'm doing, and it's really all I know, and I could easily stick it out, and maybe another six, seven, eight years worth of this cash, I could retire. But then you say to yourself, but you know, what story am I going to tell myself when I'm 85 years old sitting on the porch? For my first 30 years, I did this corporate real estate job and it was great and checked a lot of boxes. But what about the next 30 years? You know, how did I take everything I learned and go make a difference in other people's lives, whether it's people or businesses? You know, uh, the comfortable thing certainly would, would have been to stay. But I think it is looking at the evidence versus emotion. The evidence is that I'm likely to be successful. Yeah. Um, you've got to overcome the emotion, which is really fear. And, but then you have to position yourself properly, right? Think it through. And, you know, it's, while well, it's not easy, I think you've got to stick with it. It's sure. going to take a, little bit, take a little bit of time, but it's, it's, it's worth doing. It's worth betting on yourself. Yeah. You know, there's, there's something that I'm looking for here that the audience wants to hear, and which is what was the breaking point? What was the last straw or final straw? Like, what was the point where you said, I got to go? I can't keep doing this. And is it, is it the, it's more than the story you're going to tell. It's more, it's more than the legacy you're going to leave. But those things are very important. The legacy that you're going to leave, the things you're teaching and showing your children, other people that are looking up to you, the story you're going to tell, like all those things. But there's something else in there that, that, you're, that, that broke inside of you and you said, I can't keep going. I can't keep going like this. I'm scared about 
I'm more scared to stay in this career than I am to, to leave and do this on my own. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there was there were certainly a lot of a lot of things. It wasn't an overnight decision. I think yeah. one of them was COVID, you know, there, during COVID, I found myself, I went into the office every single day, yeah. you know, and, and I, I went in there and said to myself, you know, what am I doing? I'm sitting right. in an empty, empty office every day, you know, and, and there's got to, there's got to be more than this, you know, I enjoy being in front of people. I like being a leader. I like being in front of a team. And, you know, I, I really didn't have that. Some of that was COVID. Some was sort of the nature of the organization I was working in, um, you know, w- w- which is fine. None of these are bad things. They're just, they're, they're not fulfilling and rewarding things when you say to yourself, you know what, um, if I've gotten to a certain age where I've got a little bit of money set aside, um, you know, and I've got a couple other sources of side income, all of which I've, you know, intentionally put in place, and I've got a lot of the bills behind me. And, and, and the definition of failure is not that big a deal. Worst case is it doesn't work out, I get a job. You know what, why not, why not try it? And, and if now, when? You know, at, at the time I was 53, you know, 52, and, and I said to myself, it's not gonna be 10 years from now. It's, right. if not, it, it's gonna be today when I've got the energy and I've got the drive and the motivation. And I still have my network and my contacts, and, you know, and, and the ability to open some doors. So, you know, I think for those people thinking, thinking about a change, I would really sit down and consider the evidence versus emotion and, and really think about what's the worst that happens. You know, yeah. the, the best that happens is, you know, a whole new world opens up in, in terms of unlimited possibilities. Um, worst that happens is you're unhappy, you made a mistake, and you go back and get a job. But I, but I think it's, it's worth giving it, giving it a try. And I think you do it in a smart way, you know, having thought it out. Totally. And, and you and I are both entrepreneurs that, have said, yeah, I think I may, I may go back. I may, I've never had a job, but there have been many times in my, in my real estate career, not my coaching career, but my real estate career, where I was like, I think I'm going to go work for somebody. I can make half the money, but be responsible for a hundred percent less, you know, and not have all this anxiety. And, and, and every, every 28th of every month going, Oh my God, I got to do this again. Oh, we're spending too much money. Our expenses are out of control or, why did that marketing not work? I spent 10 grand on it. That's stuff that you don't have when you work for somebody, but you always run the risk that that person's thinking the same thing. And eventually they're like, you know what? I'm going to shut this thing down and you're out of a job anyway. So you might as well go for it if you're that type of person. And for the guy that's listening or the girl that's listening who says, yeah, but Gene was older. I was 29 when I left my dad's business. You know, with nothing broke on my ass with my freshly married house in foreclosure and cars getting repoed before I could even look outside. And there's always going to be not the right time. Sure. And there's always going to be not the right time. <laughs> That's it. There's, there's no, there's no other, there's no like, well, when this happens and this happens and that tweaks and that tweaks, it's never going to be really the right time. The right time is whenever you decide you need to go because you're determined and you'll, and you'll make it. So you can either be in your 50s, your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, it doesn't matter. 20 years out of company probably is harder to leave and start than three years. It's got to be because now you're used yeah. to getting fed every week, you know? No, I think, I think, you know, everything you said is true and it makes sense. And those are the experiences I had. And I don't, I don't think there is ever a right time. I just think you have to do it. You have to act. Sure. Um, and recognize that you have fallbacks. I think that the big takeaway that I've seen, you know, is basically not uh, loving Fridays yeah. and, and getting down on Sundays, right? It's the idea of, 
there's, there's some days I wake up and I can't figure out what day it is because I kind of do the same thing every day. Right. You know, I, I play during the week and I, and I work on weekends and, and you know, my time's my own and I'm probably working more, but I'm working on the things that are meaningful and impactful to me and to others. Yeah. And so, um, you know, th there's no distinction between, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, which, which is a really, really great, great feeling and, and very hard to put a price on. Yeah. And, and what that's about is living the life that you actually want and not saying, well, I'm making X dollars. Maybe it's a really high figure. I'm making X dollars at this job. You know what? I've got the 401k. I've got the benefits. I got the check coming in. It's a cush job. I don't really have to work that hard, but you can't dip out on a Tuesday and go boating or go to the islands for a week. Or you can't do that when you have that level of, of handcuff, regardless of how tight the handcuffs are on. When you're working for somebody, you're not, you're not free to do your thing. And if that's really something that's eating at you and there's a heavy resistance that like it was with you, like that's the time to say, all right, I'm pulling the trigger and plan. You can prep and plan, but make it yeah. just like Meredith and I did moving to LA. I, we put Ellis in school. We paid the thing up in, in the year up. And I said, this is when we're moving. And we were like, okay. And it started getting scarier and scarier and scarier. But then the Band-Aid got ripped off and it was totally fine. And yeah, it's still a little scary. And I shot a video a couple, you know, last week or a couple weeks ago in the group where it's definitely nerve-wracking. I'm definitely uncomfortable. But it, it's worth it because I know that I'm not cheating myself in any capacity. That I'm going after the things that I say I want to live the lifestyle that I want to live, which is freedom. Which mm -hmm. is total freedom to be able to do what I want when I want. That's it. If I want to take my kids to the pool from 12 to four on a Monday, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to build businesses to support that lifestyle. And that's my choice. And I feel great about that. And that's a great story to tell and a great legacy to leave. In my opinion, not that having a job isn't, but if you're at your desk and you're constantly, especially if you're high level like you, and you're constantly thinking, this isn't it. This isn't it. I got to figure out what the other side of the coin looks like or what the dark side of the moon looks like or whatever you want to say. Then you have to take that risk and you have to know that it's going to be all right because you will figure it out or you just go back and get a job. Just because you leave doesn't mean that your skills and your marketable talents trail off behind you as you close the door. You're right. still there. The resume still looks the same except the date has an end period, you know? Sure. No, it makes a lot of sense. And I'll give you a couple thoughts. You know, I think one and this, this, you know, take this in the right way, but it's, it's like when you're dealing with employees and you've, you've come to the conclusion that this employee is no longer a fit yep. and you're, you're clear about that. Very, very, you know, most managers and leaders and supervisors will not, not deal with that. Yep. Right. They'll put it off and they'll find reasons not to part ways. And I, and I, you know, what I've learned over the years is, is that decision never gets better. The longer you wait, things don't get better for the organization. And so it's not unlike what we're talking about here. You know, I've never made a change in an organization and said, I wish they had waited another six weeks. Right. You know, and I think it's the same thing in this case. Um, you need to be thoughtful and you need to plan. But, you know, at some point you just need to take action. Um, a couple other thoughts. You know, one is I, I always say to myself, you know, as I think about the new opportunities to come up, because as you, you know, leave an organization, which is very uh, known to you, you know, you're going to be faced with a lot of uncertainty, uh, you know, if you're going out to work for yourself. And one thing I always say to myself is opportunities come up because more opportunities will come up than you think. I say to myself, if I had unlimited money, would I be doing this? And I think it's a good, good question. There's another one, you know, this expression, if it's not a hell yeah, then it's a no. And I try to remind myself that as well, 
that, that if this is just not an absolute no-brainer, then you know what? Let's let's just save and save the money and save the time for the next right opportunity. So just a, a few you know thoughts on how how I you know analyze opportunities that come up now. Yeah, man, I love that. That that the one because you and I have talked about this before. <clears throat> I, I would always say that to myself when I was selling real estate and the answer was, no, I wouldn't. I would quit this in a heartbeat. If I $10 million in my account, there's, I'm not, never again, I'm going to rip my license up. I, I, I never again. But when it comes to coaching, the answer is absolutely. Like 10 million sitting my, in my account, I'm still hanging with you looking out over the water, you know, strategizing on a business model. And like, that's really fun for me. The, the thing that I always say is we, we may be doing it from a, from, we might have a different view. We might be on a yacht in the Caribbean or at a big house in LA or something, but I'm still doing that because I really love it. And that's how you know that resistance is the lowest. You'll get through all the resistance pieces, probably most easiest. And like I, I always say, you know, I got this quote <clears throat> from Jimmy Iovine from Interscope Records, like your goal, your job, every single time fear hits, it's going to be a headwind and try and push you and force you down and just tire you out and put you to the ground. But your goal and your job is to get better and better and better and better and better, which is what you've done, I've done as an entrepreneur, to spin that headwind, that fear as a headwind to a tailwind and let it push you into the next thing, the next uncomfortable thing, the next big leap that you have to take, next chance you got to take a risk. And then you get better and better and better at converting headwind to tailwind. And that's it. Like there's no secret. You can't, you can't fend off fear. You're never going to be not scared as an entrepreneur or, or uncomfortable or fearful. You're just going to spin the fear faster and know through evidence over emotion that it's going to be fine. And if it's not fine, you're going to learn a hell of a lot, but you're probably going to gather some more stuff to know that if you ultimately fail and it's all over, you can write up a quick resume and you can go get a job because you're a little bit better than you were yesterday. Exactly. I think, Love it. I think. Love it. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I think you're right. So, um, so I want to make sure we have time uh, for shopping center stuff because this fascinates me. And I'll tell you, listening to you talk about it um, was very helpful because I don't, I, I honestly don't learn from just anybody and my brain works fast and, and it's, and it latches onto somebody who says something interesting and then they have to keep my attention. And if they don't, then I'm like, yep, no, I'm, I'm out. But you have a way of keeping my attention and keeping me interested in shopping centers and I've been investing in multifamily and single family for, for a long time, flipping and doing some Airbnb stuff um, in all honesty and nothing against those things. But in all honesty, I personally got bored. I was bored with the multifamily model. I'm bored with the uh, single family model. I'm not bored with the Airbnb model, but I was looking for something else. And, and I, I, I can't remember the line um, that like, shifted something in me that you said to me months and months ago, but there was a line you said, and I was like, Oh my God, that sounds really fun. That sounds really fascinating. And that was it. And I was just, a, I was a convert at that point. And then we just started learning about shopping center investment. I think one of the biggest things I like is that you don't have all the residential tenant laws to deal with. You know what I mean? Like this is a business in there, not someone's home. Very big difference. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and so I've, I've worked a lot in multifamily over the years, you know, when I left uh, my, my um, longtime employer, we had 10,000 apartment units, you know, and so I've spent a lot of time in that business, you know, as well as other, you know, uh, sure. um, asset classes, flex office and flex warehouse and, and you know, mid-rise office and, 
But shopping centers, you know, I, I think that there's some misconceptions about shopping centers today. One is that it's all retail and retail is going away because of Amazon and e-commerce. And that's partially true. And it's certainly true with some types of properties and that could be enclosed malls or, or power centers and that type of thing. And, and certainly lifestyle centers are being impacted. But the types of shopping centers that you and I are talking about are really neighborhood and community shopping centers that are full of service, convenience and necessity types of uses. And so the centers that I'm talking about are really, you're not walking out with bags full of stuff. They're, they're full of pizza shops and, and sub shops and hair salons and nail salons and service types of uses, the tax preparer. And so those uses tend to be very uh, e-commerce resistant. They tend to be very sticky. That is, they, they stay for a long time and you simply don't have the turnover that you might, for example, in multifamily. And, and I share your sentiment too about this isn't about beating up a multifamily. I, I think what I would say though about multifamily is that is the red ocean. There's a lot of people that are in single family, multifamily uh, in that world. And I would say the blue ocean is, is, is shopping centers. There's comparatively fewer people in, in that world, um, particularly on the smaller side. There's plenty of institutional level investors, REITs and institutions in, involved in large centers because they have big checkbooks. But I would tell you that the neighborhood and community centers, it's not an untapped market, but certainly there are very, um, very few people that are really in that business. They've tended to be over the years owned by, you know, mom and pop investors, uh, the doctors and lawyers. Um, they're generally not institutionally owned and they're too small for the big institutional owners, but they're sort of too big and probably too complicated, at least in theory, for a lot of the people doing multifamily deals today. Um, I actually think it's a much easier property type for lots and lots of reasons, even though I think a lot of the multifamily investors believe it to be more complicated. It's like everything. It's I don't know. But I did. It's just different. I did. Like I really thought it was. I never understood it. We had a lot of warehouse space with my dad's uh, shipping company. I never understood how they make money. Like how you know they're always negotiating the rates and the square footage. I'm like, how do they make any money? Because some of these spaces are sitting empty for like two, three years. I mean, are they just paying out of their pocket? I, mean, was, I was always turned off to it because I never understood how you just got tenants. And I think that yeah. that just non-education that I had was scaring me away from it. Maybe like it's scaring other people who really know about how to get a, a, uh, a residential tenant into like a multifamily, like a, even a duplex or a triplex or a 500 unit complex. That's a, it's a, it sounds like, or was, did sound like to me that it was a different methodology, which it is. And then a totally different world to play in. And I just couldn't understand how you make that business fit that space or that space fit that business. And, but it's actually very easy. Yeah, it really is. And so the highlights as I think about it are, you know, and you alluded to it earlier, this is really business to business, yeah. right? It's not business to consumer, business to resident. And so, you know, for that reason, to me, it's a lot easier. And, and you know, back to your comment about the sort of the property management side and dealing with the 24 seven aspect of, of multifamily, you know, obviously in multifamily, it really is a 24 seven business. When the roof leaks, it's, it's leaking in an apartment unit and, and that's an immediate response and an immediate need to, to address. Um, there's, there's clearly a lot and you see it today. There's a lot of government involvement in multifamily housing, whether it's price controls, whether it's, um, you know, requiring landlords to accept vouchers, whether it's um, the cancel rent culture yep. that we see now, this, and it's not political, it's just simply economic. You know, I believe that increasingly housing is going to become an entitlement. Yep. And as a result, you as the owner are going to have less and less, uh, possibly less and less control over your, your 
spaces in your apartment units. Anyway, that aside, um, what I like about the shopping center business is it is business to business. Um, if, if a roof leaks in the middle of the night, it's leaking on a stack of books and that's something we can replace in the morning. It's, it's not, you know, the same type of, of emergency, understandably so. Um, also, you know, when you think about multifamily, there's a significant amount of turnover, right? You have one year leases and 30, 40, 50%, depending on the market and the type of property, you have a lot of turnover, clearly. Um, multi, uh, commercial leases, you know, shopping center leases tend to be five or 10 years yeah. and oftentimes longer. The other nice thing is when tenants are ready to uh, sort of get out of business, they basically oftentimes sell their business. Yeah. So in other words, if a pizza shop, you know, after 30 years, it's time to move on, they don't just close up and walk away. They sell the business to somebody else and they essentially replace themselves. Right. That's clearly not true every time, but it happens a lot. You know, in thinking about how to attract, uh, attract tenants to empty spaces, there's a lot of ways to do that. And we could, you know, spend a lot of time on it. But I would simply say it's being thoughtful about the tenant mix you know, what is, what is my center need that it doesn't have now, given the community? You know, it, does it have a dry cleaner? And if not, why? Um, if it's got a pizza sub shop, uh, shop, does it have a sub shop? And if not, why? Um, it's also thinking about what are the appropriate types of uses given the size and configuration of the space. If you have 12 to 1500 foot space, there's certain, certain types of users that make sense for that. Yeah. Given the frontage and depth and given the signage and ingress and egress and, and visibility. Um, and also given the co-tenants in the center. So, there's a lot of uh, thoughtfulness that goes into that, but it's certainly doable. And, and I would say that, you know, much like residential, you're working with a lot of brokers out there. Many, many retailers today, and I use that loosely, but it's, it's anybody that would go into a shopping center, they will often hire real estate brokers to represent them, just like buyer will and, and you know, residential. Yeah. And so oftentimes, you know, if you have a 2,000 square foot space available in a shopping center, there's a broker out there representing three or four tenants, and they're going to bring the tenant to you. Hey, Gene, you know, hey, I like the 2,000 square foot space in the center. What's the rent? Can we make a deal? Um, so it's very much in that regard, like, like uh, residential. And it, it's, like, it's like everything, you know, it, it, while it seems like it's hard to, you know, figure out a couple years into the business, yeah. it, uh, it makes a lot of sense. One of the things that I was afraid of, and I'm just going to, I'm calling out to the, uh, to the audience's potential insecurities or questions, because these were, these are, they still kind of are mine, even though I understand it from working with you for a long time with it. So I always thought that, you know, how, how do I know that, a, like, so many businesses go out, right? So many businesses, a pizza shop, a sub shop, a haircut, how, so many people go out of business. How do you know that a business is going to be viable? And I always thought that you really have to know how to understand and analyze a business and maybe a part of your job, which is what I like to do, and this is what I do as a professional coach, but I like to help them build a better business in my shopping center. And that was what would be attractive to me. But do you really need to care about the business and how this person's running it or does it not matter? I, I think you do. You know, I, I think if somebody calls and says, hey, Gene, I see you have 2,000 square feet available. You know, how much is the rent? Right. We never talk about the rent. What I talk about is tell me about your business. Right. I want to understand, do you have an existing business? Are you going to be relocating? Do you have multiple locations? You know, when you come in, who's going to do the work, you or me? Because if I'm spending the money on your space, it's very different rent than if you're spending the space. So I want to really try to understand the business. You know, and part of that is asking, do you have a business plan? Do you have, you know, historical P&L statements and balance sheets that I can take a look? You know, it, it's really, it's not unlike underwriting if you're a lender, you know, of any type. You're sitting there saying, okay, 
I'm trading rights in my real estate, i.e. rights in my space to you for the next five or 10 years. As a tenant, you need to demonstrate to me that you can successfully run this business and pay rent over the next five years. And it's not just about paying rent, it's about being a positive addition to the shopping center. So I, I need you to be open in the entire space. I need you to operate in a first class manner. I need you to do what you say you're gonna do. So if you say you're gonna be a Greek style restaurant, that's what I need you to do. I can't have you selling shoes one month and jewelry the next month. And so, you know, we really are, uh, we, we care about them. We also care about the co-tenants in the center in the community. You know, it, 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 there's a lot of synergies there, it has to work. So a lot of the work that we do is digging in. You know, so if I am gonna hire an in-house leasing agent or I'm gonna work on buying a shopping center, I need someone that can do tenant underwriting and tenant evaluation. Part of that is saying, okay, you know, let's say we're going to buy a shopping center. We're looking at the rent roll. We're trying to figure out, okay, how long has that tenant been in business? If they've been here since 1984, right. pretty good sign. If they're two years in business, you know what? Not sure. The other thing is a lot of the times in shopping centers, a good shopping center managers and owners require tenants to report gross sales. And so I can look at the tenants gross sales and say, you know, they do $400 a square foot. That's a very good number for this market for that type of use. And therefore I know that by definition, they're successful. Yeah. as compared to that same center, uh, same tenant doing $200 a square foot. So we're looking at um, what kind of rent are they paying? What's their sales history? What's their business plan? What's the sales trends? And we're also simply walking into the space and taking a look around. You know, is, if you could pick, if this center was vacant, you could put anybody in there. Yeah. Is this who you'd put in there? Yeah. So there, there's a lot of that type of analysis. It's half art, half science. Which, which is the interesting piece because you actually, you have a community tie, like you mentioned earlier, you have a community tie element, which is what's best for this community, not what's like in a, um, in a multifamily scenario, I would always say, what's going to be best for my cash flow? What type of tenant, not, not, not like being discriminatory, but I'm saying like, um, do I want to run a building uh, over here, class D or over here, class A or over here, class B? Like I'm just, I'm thinking about those different types of tenants. Um, but with the shopping center, you're thinking about what does the actual community need? Because now all those people from those apartment buildings are coming to you, you know, or from the houses are coming to this shopping center to, to frequent it. I like the art of that better than placing tenants in a residential scenario because there is an art and it's fun. It's like, huh? All right. Well, there's three pizza joints within a quarter mile of here. Do we really need another pizza joint or could we use a dry cleaner or do we want to press it and put a smoothie place in, in the small town? Would that do well? Or uh, do we really want a vape shop? Does that throw the right image off to our, you know, like those kind of things. I think that's really cool. That's creative, you know? It's definitely a puzzle, you know, and you have a lot of latitude in what you can do with yeah. your spaces, as you mentioned, unlike, you know, multifamily. And, you know, and it can be a lot of fun. And I would tell you that, you know, one of the things is you learn a lot doing this. You work with a lot of different types of businesses, a lot of business owners, and you really do learn about their business and what's important to them and what's not important. You know, I remember when I first started, we had an empty uh, space in a shopping center and I was calling florists. And after 10 no's, to say, I'm not coming to that shopping center. One of the people said, look, Dean, it's this simple. The wire services, FTD and Teleflora, whatever they were at the time, they control the, the, the flower market. And, and unless you've, you've got the ability to get those guys to agree to a new location, it's not going to happen. It saved me a lot more phone calls. So, yes. you know, it's just beginning to learn the, the business. You know, you can't put a restaurant in a space that doesn't have right utilities, plumbing, you know, gas, uh, water, sewer, grease trap, um, the right level of HVAC on the roof and the appropriate parking. Right. And so it's, it's a matter of just sitting down and saying, okay, if the center was empty, what, what would be great? What would be yeah. the ideal tenant mix? And yeah. then how do we work it in that direction? So this is, it's, uh, 
This is the part where you and I are still bad at math. However, we know formulas really well. This is the formulaic part. So for all those people listening who are not great at math, be great at formulas because figuring out a formula, like when you envision in your head, this like bustling little strip center and people are happy and kids are skipping down the street, you know, the, the sidewalk eating ice cream, like what does that look like? That's a formula that you have to figure out how to, how to put the X and Y and Z and it'll equal a, a, a successful and cash flow producing and, you know, hopefully gross rent multiplying and revenue, you know, doubling kind of place. And, and, and it's equity multiplying and all that other stuff. But this is the formula we were talking about earlier. And this is what interested me so much more in this type of investing over the residential space. Nothing against those. This is just my personal thing. And it happens to be yours too. Yeah. Well, and I would say too, you know, the, the nice thing about shopping centers too, is there's, there's, there's an art to setting rents. Yeah. Right. And, and, and it's very different in, you know, multifamily and other property types that are a little more of a commodity. Um, there may be three or four two bedroom, two baths, you know, in, in, in one mile of here that right. I could rent and they're substantially similar. And so the rents are going to be within a band. But I would tell you that in, in um, particularly in the retail, we're talking about the service convenience. You know, you think about a restaurant, a restaurant, if they can pay 10% of their gross sales, if a 5,000 foot restaurant does $400 a foot in gross sales, it's, it's $2 million a year. Right. If they can pay 10%, it's 200,000. Right. And, and so that's the rent on 5,000 feet. That's $40 a foot. So I don't care if the market is 15 or $20 a foot for a 5,000 foot space. If I have a $2 million restaurant and they can pay eight to 10% of, you know, of gross sales, the rent is 16. I mean, it's 30 to $40 a foot. So there's definitely an art to this. Yeah. Um, but you know, but, but certainly it's a lot of fun as you suggest. So that's what it was. That's what it was that got me that one day where we were talking about, I don't know how we got started on this, but um, you said it, in shopping centers, it doesn't matter with a guy down the street is charging because if this guy's doing triple what that guy's doing in, this, in a similar size space and a similar business, and this guy can afford that, this is what he's paying to be here. And it's not that it's like unfair or some kind of price gouging. It's, Hey man, like we're going to help do everything we can to drive traffic here and, and make sure the shopping center is, is as attractive as possible and has the right type of businesses in, in the mix. And, and you're doing twice the revenue of that restaurant that's a quarter mile or half mile down the road. So yeah, he's paying 15 bucks a foot and you're paying 40, but you're also doing double what he's doing. And you're still making, you know, 35% more revenue at the end of the day. What does that actually matter? That's the cool part that you can't comp it. I mean, you, I get, can you comp a shopping center, but it's really just a benchmark of somewhere to start, right? It's, it, yeah, it's, it's a benchmark to start. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and I would, I would just say that there's so much nuance to every individual space, how wide it is, you know, whether you can circulate around the back for deliveries and loading, who yeah. your co-tenants are, what the parking field up front looks like, the sign, is there a big column holding the facade up right in front of your space, which is going to make visibility and access a challenge. Right. There's so much nuance to every space. Every 2,000 foot space is just simply not the same in terms of rent and in terms of desirability, which are essentially the same thing, supply and demand. And so, you know, to, to a large extent, commercial rents, particularly in these shopping centers, they are tied to sales, oftentimes directly through percentage rent clauses, as an example. So, you know, it, it, there is the, there's the opportunity to create greater upside for yourself for that reason. Yeah. So um, how does somebody... Well, here, here, here's what I want to do first. 
you know, the, the audience knows I don't plug a lot of stuff. But what I really love is that I've been immersed in the multifamily and single family space for a very long time. So that's where my knowledge and, and I, maybe I would, maybe it's like a self, self-described expertise, which maybe it's not an expertise because I've had a lot of failure, uh, but I have had good success too in the, in the investing space. Um, what I really liked was that you have this really easy way of breaking these steps down to, to understand the, 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 the fundamental basics to build this foundation that's real strong. Instead of saying like, all right, well, we'll just go and buy a shopping center. Like if people are paying attention, you just threw out a lot of little idiosyncrasies and little details that are going to be crucial in your pricing and in tenant placement and in your purchase and all those things. Um, but I love your course because it, it, um, it's just so simple. And it literally is a roadmap here to here to here to here to here to here. Okay, now you're ready to go start to look. This is what you're looking for. Now you're ready to, to write an LOI. Now you're ready to make, you know, like get this thing under contract. Now you're ready to do this. And, and I'm plugging it because I helped with some of the structure. So I feel great about that. And that I'm very, I'm very um, uh, clear that people are going to learn this thing at a high rate. So for people out there that are wondering, well, how do I get started in this? Because this sounds really awesome. The same way it did for me. Um, Gene has a course and we're going to talk to you about that at the end. And, and, but right now I want to just, how does someone get started besides buying your course and learning about it? If somebody's like, well, I'm pretty versed and, and I just want to, I'm going to, you know what? I'm the kind of guy that just drops the hammer and then maybe I'll take the course later. How does someone get started? Like, what do they even, where do you even go? Where do you start? Let's play naive yeah, I mean, for a second. I'm going to play totally naive. Sure. I mean, it, it, as you said, short, short of just taking the class, right. you know, what I, what I would do is I, I would go online and I would look under some of the real estate auction sites at shopping centers for sale. And I would begin to look at those shopping centers, you know, get, get the offering memorandum and just take a look, look at the terminology and, and begin to think about if you own that center, what would you do next? Right. Think about, you know, do the rents feel high? Do the rents feel low? Do the tenants feel like they're the right types and size of tenants for that property? If there are three or four vacancies in, in, in the center, what are some ideas of what you'd put in there? Now, you're not going to know everything, but what you're beginning to do is put a business plan together. You're beginning to put the pitch to the investors together, which is, hey, I've got this great opportunity. It's a 30,000 foot shopping center in Nebraska. You know, it's got uh, uh, these types of tenants and these types of uses, three vacancies. What are some complementary types of uses that would make sense in there? And, you know, it, it's the same sort of back of the envelope math. You know, we're buying an income stream. Uh, what are we going to pay for that based upon the perceived risk of it? Um, yeah. The world, the world thinks that's risky, <laughs> um, but you know, that's, that's where I, where I would start. Things that are going to be harder to figure out is you're looking at the center. It has three vacancies and you say to yourself, you know what? I'd love to put a pizza shop in there. That would be great. Yeah. But what you don't realize is the grocery store, there's a small grocery store in there. The grocery store has a limitation on the amount of prepared foods you can sell in the center. Right. It has an exclusive or, or a site restriction. Right. And so those are the places you get tripped up and they're, you're not going to always find that in the offering memorandum is, you know, tenants have excuse, exclusive uses. If you want me to open an ice cream store, I want to be the only ice cream store and the next person can't sell ice cream. Um, or I have a site restriction that says you, you can't do anything with the parking lot. We might look at the center and say, no, it'd be great. What if we put a McDonald's in the parking lot yeah. and create $60,000 and it's six caps, a million dollars in value creation. Right. But what you didn't realize is that, 
Maybe there's FAR limitations on buildable area from a zoning standpoint. Maybe the anchor tenant in a property has a limitation on what you can do with the parking lot for signage and visibility reasons. So there's a lot of things we need to think about when we look at these centers, but I would go online, start to download some of these for sale properties and, uh, and, and just begin to, to immerse yourself in the language, the terminology and the creativity of if I own this thing, what would be a great vision for what this thing looks like two years from now? Yeah, that's the big piece. That's a really cool piece is the creativity. So when you say like a pizza shop, is there a, do you, is there like a, a place that you wouldn't put a Papa John's or a pizza hut and a place that you'd want to bring more local? Or is it like, man, we, we would be um, like, I'm thinking about the, 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 the little tiny strip mall next to the Ramada. Nobody's going to know this unless they're from this area. You know what I'm talking about? The Papa John's next to um, music around. Yep. How did that little tiny shopping center get Papa John's? Is it because it's on York Road or is it because it's a nice center or it's got tons of parking and visibility or is it all of those things? And would a local pizza joint do just as well in a, in a center like that? And would a Papa John's be okay in a, in a center that's maybe not on a main road or is that what they're looking for? I mean, I'm just thinking about when people are looking at shopping centers to buy and they're like, man, I could get a Starbucks or a national tenant. They have a whole different set of criteria than a, you know, a little Luigi's Pizza would, who's like a local guy, right? Sure. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question, and I would say that the you know the uniqueness of every property is just that that it could be all those reasons you mentioned. It's hard yeah. to know. You know, I would say with respect to you know a York Road quarter like we're talking about, there's there's such demand and such limited supply that you find retailers and operators taking whatever they can get. But, you know, I, I would say that probably the biggest thing, you know, when you look at attributes of properties and what makes them work or not work for tenants is probably parking and invisibility, right? I mean, the, the reason the reason these these users, I'll say retailers, but these service, you know, necessity, convenience, and these retailers, the reason they want these shopping centers is largely visibility. You know, otherwise they'd be in the back of a business park doing whatever they do. Right. So a lot of it's that. You want, you want drive-by, you know, easy access. Parking is a big one though, you know, it, it really is. Um, a lot of older centers particularly have uh, less parking than, than they should, they're overbuilt. And so, you know, while there's a lot of, you know, Ubers and, um, you know, ride sharing, there's still retailers in these uses, they, they want parking. So that, that that's a big, big part of it. But I don't know that there's hard and fast rules. What I would say is that, you know, tenants like Starbucks, they get the real estate game. They are very sophisticated. Um, in their in their site selection process, and you know you've really got to pay attention to current trends. You know today they want a drive through. You know, and, and so if you can't put them on an end cap and end space with a drive through or or on a pad site, yep. probably going to be a tough tough time. The opportunities are to find shopping centers where they're in line, and you can take them out of the inline space and put them into your own center in a drive through or an end cap. That's the opportunity. Uh, is, is to, to figure out that piece. I would tend to say too, if you find a shopping center that you're buying or considering, and it doesn't have a lot of national tenants in it, the probability of you getting national tenants, yeah. unless it's an A location, is going to be limited. You know, there really is a synergy between you know what goes in into a property. That's what I was just thinking about that because I mean, it's, it feel I feel like Starbucks will go anywhere, you know, and and like there there there's but if you think about it. Um, Driving down Pacific Coast Highway last week with my kids, my, trying to get my son to go to sleep because he's off, you know, schedule. And my daughter's like, Dad, 
I wanted a hot chocolate and a cake pop from Starbucks. And it was just me and the two kids in the car. And I'm like, cool. Uh, let's, let's go to find a drive through Well, I drove for five miles and didn't find a drive through Starbucks. I found nine Starbucks, but Starbucks, but I did not find a drive through And so I did not get, I, what am I going to do? Leave a baby sleeping in the car? Like it was not an option. And I'm used to that here. Almost every single one now has converted into a drive through you know, and left strip malls and gone to a pad site or an end cap, like you said. Very interesting to point that out. Um, another thing I want to ask you about is the loans, the loan structure. Whereas um, a lot of the stuff that we've been researching could be non-recourse and a, uh, a multifamily is going to be a recourse loan. And for any of you that don't know what, re- just tell people what recourse and non-recourse is for those that don't know that word. Sure. It's, I mean, it's, it's basically about personal guarantees and personal recourse against you if, you know, you, you guaranteeing a loan on behalf of the, the lender. Yeah. So um, are, can you get, I don't know how to ask this. Is it more prevalent to get a shopping center that's non-recourse or get a loan that's non-recourse and it's with a shopping center? Is that something that's pretty prevalent? Um, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say more so or, or less so. I, I think, I think that banks, it's funny, I talked to a friend of mine, a banker the other day about the same thing. And he said, you know, there's a lender out there for everything. And, you know, because I, I said to him, look, do you think there's an opportunity to get non-recourse loans? And he said, there are people that will do that deal for you. Um, what he was saying is I wouldn't do it, but yes, you can, you can find it. I would say that the perception in the market that retail is risky um, is going to lead to um, lower loan to values. You know, you're not going to simply be able to borrow as much. Um, and probably more conservative loan terms. Um, and that could mean guarantees as well. And so, you know, if I didn't want to guarantee a loan and wanted a non, non-recourse, you know, the way I would think about it is, okay, I need to raise a little more equity for my deal. I'm going to ask my lender for 60%, not push it to 75. Um, you know, I can get to 75, but, it's, but I'm going to put my name on the line and I just have to decide how good do I feel about that. So, you know, I think you're better off going in and saying, let, let me target 60%, let me raise a little more equity. Frankly, the yields are going to be good. You know, you can buy these shopping centers at an eight cap. You know, cost of capitals, you know, debts at five. I would target interest only before I would uh, target a higher loan to value. And then you build just like a multifamily, then you re- reposition it, build it up, put some new tenants in, and then refinance it. Correct. Yep. Either put a second loan on it or, or yep. refinance it, but get that get that capital gain out today. And is is the is the uh, um, repositioning process and building equity and, and uh, um, NOI, is that kind of the same as a multifamily? Yeah, it is. You know, I, I, just like multifamily, you've got two levers, right? You've got NOI. You can either increase the NOI, you can drop the cap rate. Those are the two ways we have of creating value. And so, you know, with, with retail, it's a little easier uh, be, because frankly, you can push the rents much harder than you can push rents on, um, on, on any type of multifamily or, or office space. Yeah, it's just, there's, there's too much of the same type of space out there for that to work in these other asset classes. So that's number one. Number two, there, there are ways to create synergies within the property by putting complementary uses that cross shop, right? A, a lot of what we want to do is make sure that there's a lot of cross shopping that takes place, um, particularly with your, your, lead, you know, your lead tenants. And so you might, you know, you get to Starbucks, well, they can pay a lot of rent. You might, you might make a deal with them because they're going to bring a lot of other traffic to your center, not just uh, um, shoppers, but also other um, tenants are going to notice now that you have them. And, and frankly, they're a small anchor. So that, 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 that's, how I, that's how I think about it. I, you know, I think as far as um, 
sort of the other side of, of NOI is really recoveries, right? In these, in these triple net leases that, that tenants pay, they pay for not only the base rent, but they pay commentary maintenance taxes and insurance. So you're getting a large part of your operating expenses actually reimbursed. What you find is old leases that are where you have a shopping center run by someone that's maybe not so professional yeah. or they just don't pay attention. There's a lot of upside there and in increasing your recovery rate. So it's not just bringing rents to market or better than market and filling vacancy. It's also recovering your operating expenses, possibly putting percentage rent clauses in place as well. And on the cap rate side, we're, we're going to try to drop the cap rate on the whole thing and take the risk out of the asset. And we do that by making sure we have long-term leases, no termination rights based upon things like gross sales kickouts, good credit enhancements. We need guarantees. We need liens on equipment. You know, it's, it's sort of basic, um, the basic idea of, uh, underwriting to make sure you get paid. Now, what happens if somebody, I mean, tenants go out of businesses, go out of business. It happens. Obviously you're going to do as much homework as you can. Things happen. COVID happens, you know, events happen. What is something, what do you do? I mean, obviously we, we talked about sort of not jokingly, but it's a lot easier to, to take care of a tenant that's not paying than it is sure. in the residential format. But what do you do in that case? I mean, most of the time these are businesses. These aren't, individuals coming to you and saying, I'm, I'm going to sign on the dotted line. It's the, they're signing on behalf of the business that how do you, how do you recover? I mean, and if you go through an event like, like a COVID, how does a, how does a shopping center owner hold up when, you know, four out of 10 of the businesses have gone out and the, and the rents are just, just disappeared. Sure. It's, it's a great question. And, and I think COVID I'll speak to for a second. You know, I dealt with a lot of tenants during COVID and, and you get a lot of letters from these tenants basically saying, Hey, as we're, since we're partners in this deal, Right. And so, you know, we were never partners on the upside, but now we're partners on the downside, it seems. Right. So, you know, I, I think you've got to be realistic in those scenarios where you say to yourself, okay, if I'm going to share the downside of this relationship, which apparently now I am because they're saying I'm going to close or relocate or go bankrupt, reject the lease and you can have the keys back. I think what you have to say to yourself is if I'm going to work with you on the downside, how do I come out of this better? Yeah. In other words, if you need me to become a line of credit lender, which is effectively what I'm becoming is you're not going to pay me for six months. So you can presumably pay other people, um, you know, then how am I better off after having been your lender six months from now? And so maybe I get a longer lease term. Maybe I get a better guarantee. Maybe I clean up the lease. So maybe the lease, for example, had exclusives and restrictions on the property and what I can and can't do, both with the property and other types of tenants. Maybe we clean all those types of things up because I want to be able to go back to the equity investors for whom I actually work who gave yeah. me the equity to buy the center and say to them, yes, I know it's unfortunate that the tenant is not as liquid as they should be and didn't plan well. And now we've become a line of credit lender, notwithstanding the lease. I'll tell you what though, here's how it's going to be better in six months, even though we're going to give them some free rent or abate some rent or whatever it is, we've got these accommodations. And so long-term we're better because I think that idea of, you know, remembering we work for equity investors and, and that's our fiduciary obligation first and foremost they gave us the equity and we need to be good stewards of that. Right. And for that, to, for that to be the case, we can't just be given handouts. You know, these people have leases, they made commitments to us and we expect them to adhere to it. Um, as a practical matter, look, during COVID, we had to do a lot of, <laughs> a lot of negotiation. I would say back to sort of non-COVID times, it's a lot, it really, it comes down to personal guarantees. At the end of the day, and you know, corporate guarantees are great because the corporations pay whether you're doing well or not. Sure. It's really a question of with mom and pop and small operators, if they have to guarantee the lease personally uh, and you know and we don't need five years worth of guarantee but we need them to have enough at stake so when they're having a problem they come and talk to us so what i've said to people is look you're you know your rent's a hundred thousand dollars a year 
and you got a five-year lease, you owe us a half million dollars over the next five years. I'd like a personal guarantee. And frankly, I don't need a half a million dollar personal guarantee, but I would like you to guarantee 18 months of rent on a rolling basis. So at any given time, your exposure is limited to 12 months or 18 months worth of rent. It's still a lot of money, $150,000. They're not going to walk away from that. And what I say to them is, look, if you're starting to have problems, you will know it before I do. Yep. Sales go down, costs go up, your margins are gone, you can't have employees, you got competitors in the market, your great manager left, you're sick, you want it, whatever. Whatever problems you have, I want you to come to me and, and I will begin to work on finding a replacement for you right now. But what I don't want you to do is suffer in silence and then one day you're just gone. Yep. So if you've got enough of a guarantee, you will talk to me when the time comes to talk. It's that simple. Um, and so if you come to me and say, look, I, I really need out of here. I probably got six months left before I really am out of cash. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll say, great. I want you to sign an agreement that basically says you'll allow me, the landlord, to terminate your lease with 30 days prior notice. Now I can get rid of you. Yeah. Outstanding your five-year lease. Now I can terminate the lease. And I can then say to my leasing team, go out there and find me a replacement tenant. We now have control of the space. Yeah. They're happy to let us show it, whatever it is. Um, that doesn't mean we're going to let them out for free. There's cost to turning the space, but at least they're willing to work with me. So that's the best way is they've got to have something at stake. Other quick things you can do, large security deposits, take a lien on the equipment, furniture, fixtures that are in yeah. the space, and yeah. put, a lien, put a lien on the liquor license. Those are some other ideas. Interesting. Okay. I never thought about that. I knew about the, the, um, uh, equipment, you know, chairs and stoves and pizza ovens and stuff like that. But on the liquor license, that's very interesting. Yep. Yeah. Hmm. What the, does a liquor license go with the business or with the space? Uh, it depends. Okay. Uh, we've, we've had them both ways. Yeah. And so oftentimes if, you know, for example, in the Baltimore market, we've gone out and bought liquor licenses that are owned by the shopping center in one of our names as one of the executives of the company. Um, in that case, we'll actually, we will sometimes transfer the license and retain a lien on it, or we will, um, or we'll basically rent it, rent a license to them. Yeah. Because, you know, licenses to be hundreds of thousands of dollars, sure. we'll simply say to them, hey, you know what, for $30,000 a year, you don't have to buy it. You can just pay us rent for it for yeah. the duration of the lease. Yeah. It's, it's, an, it's cool. an asset for us. Yeah, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. All right, Gene. So lastly, the, the teaching element. So I know when you left the corporate world, you, were, you love to teach, kind of like I do. You love to mentor, to teach, just to give the knowledge and the experience and the expertise back. So what's that look like for you and like, how have you branched that out? Cause it's not just about creating courses or going to, to schools and teaching, but like talk about the teaching world for you and why that was so important in your entrepreneurial journey. Sure. It's, 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 it's funny how a C student, you know, poor, right. poor, uh, poor math kid ends up teaching, but you know, back, back in 2006, I started teaching at Johns Hopkins in their master's in real estate program. I'm, I'm still teaching there 15 years later. Uh, 10 years ago, I started teaching in a Georgetown's graduate program, master's in real estate. And so, you know, that, that's a lot of fun. I've done many, many courses online, in person. I love yeah. in person, a uh, ton, ton of fun. Um, you know, and, and, and what, I've, what I've sort of learned through the process is that I have a lot of content and I have a valuable message, but I'm having trouble reaching the audience that I'd like to. And so what I've really done is said to myself, you know, it would be best for, for me and I, I think for others if I could figure out a way to sort of package this up in, in a digestible form that people could do, you know, yeah. on their own time, um, frankly, around the world. And so that's what I'm, I'm developing is, is really a, a set of courses under Parker University and Parker Advisory, where um, 
these courses are set up as individual courses or as modules. And it's primarily on commercial real estate, but I would tell you it also branches into leadership and organization development and sort of business startup because I watch so many businesses sort of go the wrong direction. Yeah. So, so those are broadly the, 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 the topics. Yeah, I love that, man. So it's the same thing that we're doing with our coaching business. I, I think some people in a scarcity mindset call it greedy. I want, with the amount of help that we give individuals, I wanted to expand that, you know, just like you did. I, I want to say, hey, man, instead of helping a uh, thousand people a year, I want to, what, what would it be like if we could help a hundred thousand people a year? That's, that's super cool. And now our mission is being fulfilled even at a higher level. So I love that you're doing that. I've been a part of helping you design and build these courses. And it's been fun for me because I love to do this. I love to build businesses and help people. And I've been learning at the same time through what you're teaching. So I wanted to bring this to the mental purpose community because I think it's extremely valuable for those that want to get into this. And for those that don't, Hey, guess what? You just, for the last hour, you just learned about a, a cool guy's story and, uh, and maybe something about investing in real estate that you didn't know about before. Cause Truthfully, I don't know a lot of people that know about shopping centers in, in my world. Um, so here's how we're going to do this. Uh, for everybody listening right now, if you are a part of the Mental Purpose community on Facebook, great. Gene's going to be teaching for free, which by the way, is like $1,000 worth of stuff because Gene's get 26 years in this thing. So, you know, Picasso draws a little thing on a napkin and the lady says, how much? And he says, $50,000. And she says, well, I just saw you draw it. It took like five minutes. And he goes, yeah, but it, it was 40 years of trial and error to be able to get this to a five-minute little drawing. And so that's what we're doing here is we're, we're taking everything that you've learned over the last 26 years doing this and failing and succeeding at a really high level, by the way, and condensing into a very structured and formatted, is it 16 steps? 17? Yeah, it, it's... So I've, right, I've got 19 now and I'm condensing it down to basically 12, 12 individual courses okay. just, just to try to make it a little more digestible. Yes, perfect. So 12, 12, courses, 12 individual courses to get you from, I'm not sure about shopping centers, to you bought your first shopping center, literally, and you are running it, managing it, financed it, everything in a nutshell for you to be as, as successful as possible. We're going to do the first two courses for free. I really support what Gene's doing. I love learning about this stuff and I want the mental purpose community to benefit from it. So Gene's agreed to do the first two courses for free. So we're going to do those on, uh, one will be today, September 20th. So if you're listening to this on the 20th and you are not a part of the mental purpose community, get your butt over, type in the mental purpose community on Facebook, put your information in. If you don't put your email in, I'm not going to let you in. You got to follow the rules. So put your email in. I'll let you in right away and join us. Later that evening, just take a look at the events tab and you'll see um, uh, Investing in Shopping Centers with Gene Parker from Parker Advisory and Parker University. Uh, for those of you that are in the group, just go to the events tab, click on it, and you'll see it September 20th and 27th. So we're going to run them on Mondays. So the 20th will be lesson one, course one, and the 27th will be course two. And then Gene's going to be a regular in the group anyway, and just answering questions about shopping centers and commercial investing and, and multifamily for that matter, because you have an expertise in that. But I'm really excited about this. And it's, it's something that I want other people to get excited about, because guess what? It is a blue ocean instead of inside of a red ocean. It's the pocket where the blood isn't. And we're going to dive into that and we're going to catch some cool fish. 
So, um, yeah, this is awesome, man. Where can people find you? Tell them about your website. Tell them about anywhere they can find you on social media. Yeah, ParkerAdvisorUSA.com is probably the best. And then, you, you know, um, I, I would say that. And then all my social media links are really off of, off of ParkerAdvisorUSA.com. Got it. That's, that's the best place. All right, love it. Well, Gene, as always, this has been informative, even to me, and I hear you talk about this every week. <laughs> um, but there's, uh, there's lots of opportunity in this space, and I really appreciate you coming on, man, and not keeping the secret anymore and putting this stuff out there so a lot of people can benefit. I know I, myself, shout out to a couple other guys in the, in the, uh, in the group that have learned a lot from you in terms of shopping center investing, and we're, we're starting to put some stuff under contract right now. So we have you to thank for that, really. Um, my confidence level has you to thank for that. Let's put it that way. Cause I might be dumb enough to go write a contract on a shopping center, but without you, I would not have the level of confidence that I do today. Um, so I really appreciate your, your knowledge, your course, your commitment to this, to, to sharing this with the audience and, uh, and helping us out too, the mental purpose community and me as a man on purpose and you being a man on purpose. I think it's awesome. So, um, this has been great, man. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it, Ian. Thanks. It's always great to catch up. I love chatting about these things. As you said earlier, we could go on for hours and do this. And I think, you know, together, you know, it's further, faster. So let's yeah, do it. Love it. All right, Gene. Well, thanks for joining us, audience. Um, you know what to do. September 20th is going to be course one, intro to shopping center investment. And uh, September 27th, that's a Monday. The following Monday is going to be course two. Let's get rolling in shopping center investment. You've got to join the Men on Purpose community to be able to do that. It's the Men on Purpose community on Facebook. Make sure you put your email and you are in. We'll get you in and we'll get you a part of the course and it will blow your mind. I guarantee it. It's awesome. Um, so thanks for listening today and uh, we'll catch you on the next one.